0: It is Wednesday, December seventh, and welcome to episode one hundred and sixty of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that normally gets you quickly up to speed three times a week on the national security and foreign policy debates shaking up America. Today, we are still at RNDF and honored to be joined by former Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisitions and Sustainment, Ellen Lord, where she was responsible for all things acquisition, including a long list of items such as contract administration, logistics and material readiness, operational energy, um, nuclear weapons acquisition, workforce, and the defense industrial base. Prior to her DOD appointment, uh, Ellen served in numerous leadership roles, including chief executive officer for Textron Company, which is a multi-billion dollar business supporting defense, homeland security, aerospace, and infrastructure protection. Let's kick this off. I think it'd be helpful for everyone to know a little bit more about your background and your time as secretary of defense for acquisition and sustainment. You know, what did your role entail and what was your mission and how did it fit into the overall you know, larger departments? And do you think your role colored how you see national security challenges in moving forward?
1: All right. Thank you, Jessica. (laughs) Absolutely. I was the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. Actually, when I began, it was Acquisition Technology and Logistics. I joined in August 2017, and by statute in February of 2018, we bifurcated ATL into Acquisition and Sustainment and Research and Engineering. So initially, I needed to work with the teams to do a huge restructuring. Once I moved forward as acquisition and sustainment, my job was to report to the Secretary of Defense and be responsible for about the $400 billion year spent we did on both products and services. So that meant setting policy as well as working on the major defense acquisition programs. Really had the opportunity to look at the entire acquisition system and adapt it to keep up to speed with the new congressional statute that had come out over the last few years and we developed what was called the adaptive acquisition framework so that we were able to scale and tailor procurement to specific kinds of needs. Uh, I think that I absolutely gained an enormous amount of respect during my time in DOD for how government works. I thought I knew a little bit about it when I went in. Um, I had been 22 years in aerospace and defense, and 11 years prior to that in the automotive industry, all with the global multi-industry company. But I realized when I got in how little I understood about how things worked. And in D.C., no one individual can drive anything, so it has to be a campaign. So you need to find the people to work with you to influence both DOD as well as Congress, because, frankly, they're like our board of directors, and they fund us, and they tell us what we can legally do and not do.
0: So would you say that split... Uh, you were describing, it was a long time coming,
1: you know. Yes, it had been discussed for multiple years and then went into statute. And I think there's still a question as to whether or not the nation benefited from that or not because whenever you make an organization more complex you introduce a little bit more bureaucracy (laughs) which takes a little bit more time and our largest challenge frankly within DOD is to move at the speed of relevance so adding more groups sometimes helps and sometimes doesn't that being said there is a very strong focus on research and engineering and rightly so and there is now a very strong focus on acquisition and sustainment and sustainment frankly had been quite underserved and still is to an extent people don't realize that 60 to 70 cents um, on the dollar over the lifetime of major programs is spent on sustainment. And typically that money early in the program that's supposed to go towards planning for sustainment gets pulled into the development side, and then we end up not designing for sustainability and we have problems keeping those programs going. So it was a good thing that there's more focus on sustainment.
0: Great. And so, you know, one of the big questions we have here and, you know, why our team is here talking to experts like yourself is last year around this time, we talked to our our, our fault lines, asked our experts, you know, what did you think the biggest national security challenge of the upcoming year was going to be? And right now, you know, we're in early December of 2022. Looking into the new year, what would you say, are, you know, the biggest challenge to U.S. national security will be in the upcoming year?
1: I think it is trying to figure out how to insert new technology into existing programs and bring non traditional players into the defense, um, industrial base because we know that the pace of innovation is far outstripping the pace of our government business practices and, uh, Ukraine has shown us um, on the battlefield how important commercial technology, dual-use technology, is. Whether it be satellite imagery, whether it be communications, this war, you know, is being fought over um, signal and some other apps like that. Also, we've seen how important a Tribble drones are. Mm-hmm. Quantity has quality all of its own. So how do we make sure that we take enough DOD dollars and put them into actual manufacturing contracts? I'm a bit concerned that we are focusing to a large degree on development, mm. where most of the innovation today is coming from industry. Mm. Now, obviously, if we're talking nuclear power, um, nuclear weapons, we talk hypersonics. That is a high impact, um, low um, volume type effort that government does have to put money into developing. But the vast majority of what we're doing, the real innovation is happening out in industry. So I'm concerned that we are not giving out enough contracts, actually placing contracts to manufacture software or hardware to build the capacity and capability we need as a nation. and Or that support our allies or absolutely, Ukraine. Right? Absolutely. That's a whole nother area. But I will just say that I am worried that we think the SBIR program is sufficient to bring new technology entrance into the defense industrial base. It's only a very small start. You have to follow up those successful programs with a contract very quickly. Now, we know we can not do everything we need Domestically, mm. and we are differentiated from China and Russia in that when well, we go to war, we go with our partners and all allies. Right. And I think we have some very powerful policy frameworks right now, whether it be AUKUS, mm-hmm. um, whether it be INTIB So AUKUS between Australia, the UK, and the US. Everybody thinks we have our own Kiwi on the team. Ah, we go. <laughs> we think it's all about nuclear subs, and that's a big part of it but there are very significant portions of AUKUS that talk about munitions, about quantum, about these other technologies where we need to make sure that we take the capital in Australia, for instance, and do the technology transfer so there can be indigenous capability developed in Australia. We also need to take um, the national technology innovation base, the NTIB. Authorities and make um, the exportability not as difficult from the US to the UK or to Australia or to Canada. So we need to, I think, start executing a little bit more and stop talking so much about the policy that we actually have in place.
0: And so, you know, you've given some practical examples, you know, like what more can DOD do? You're saying like, you know, let's not focus, you know, developments happening in industry partners. What more can DOD to support its, the industry partners that we have, to, you know, make it through the valley of death,
1: you know, yeah, keep- I think that there has to be very strong leadership at DOD to pick winners. To take those small innovative companies that have demonstrated capability, and not wait for everybody else to catch up in 18 months, mm-hmm. um, and go through very long requirements cycles—the JSIDS process—that's appropriate for a manned fighter aircraft mm-hmm. or for an aircraft carrier. But to use those other authorities, you know, other transaction authorities, middle tier of acquisition. Um, you know, urgent operational needs statements and really quickly put contracts out to get these new innovative companies into the DOD industrial base and demonstrate clear demand signal that is more than a three-month program. Mm-hmm. And it takes leadership and it takes um, a tenacity to be willing to accept the risk that everything might not be perfect. But um, if we are going to insert technology into our warfighter's hands, we need to start issuing a lot more contracts a lot more quickly. And there are a lot of companies here at the you know, mm-hmm. Reagan National Defense Forum who want very much to scale. And we need our leaders at DOD to have the managerial courage to go and give them contracts to do that.
0: And do you think it's turning that way? I mean, we kind of live in a bubble in D.C. where we see this, you know, the shortening of the bridge of the gap between Silicon Valley and D.C. And you see, you know, Critical partners in industry, and so you you read you hear the narrative. Of of course, government needs to support you know quicken contracts. So it seems as if that's what we're trending towards, or is that what we're just kind of led to believe? Right? is is, is more action
1: needed? I think much more action is needed. The good news is a about action. What are we doing right? That is the good news. The good news (laughs) is that there is a lot of venture and private equity money flowing Mm -hmm. in to defense aspirational companies that have a Mm. lot of technology. What we need to do is stop doing more and more experiments and exercises. Mm. Those are important, but to follow them up very, very quickly with actual manufacturing contracts to get production at scale for both software and hardware. Mm. And we need to really realize that today, Hardware is becoming the commodity. Mm -hmm. Our systems are hardware-enabled, yet they're software-defined. And that software is what's going to make the difference. And software development takes infrastructure just like hardware Mm -hmm. development and production does. So we need to acknowledge that software is a key area for us as a country.
0: Do you, and I mean, it, it seems as if COVID, for all of the challenges it brought, also brought this realization to the American public when it comes to supply chain insecurity. Right? That that might be one of the silver linings to the pandemic was Absolutely realizing crazy. that your typical normal way of life is can be completely uprooted very quickly.
1: We offshored too much for a whole variety of reasons. A lot of it regulatory, a lot of it tax, a lot of it not developing um, a skilled um, technical workforce at the go level. And COVID did show us that we went a little overboard there and need to bring it back home to a degree. It also showed us that we were susceptible to a lot of counterfeit items. And one of the areas where technology has been applied to great benefit is using AI and supply chain illumination to understand the beneficial ownership Mm -hmm. of different companies so that we can really understand the provenance of where's that money coming from Mm -hmm. and make sure there are no nefarious actors in there and That really started during COVID when we were looking at advanced pharmaceutical ingredients, when we were looking at um, protective equipment and a variety of other things. So COVID helped us in terms of the general public realizing that threat and that opportunity. And there is a lot of opportunity.
0: That's a wrap. Thanks to Gabriel Otis and Burke Agacon from NSI and Claude Jennings for their help producing today's episode. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our on the ground interviews out in Simi Valley. And thank you for tuning in to Fault Lines, our podcast that gets you smart fast on the national security debates shaking up America.